Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable live from L.A. I finally brought my black ass home. Oh my gosh. After three months on the East Coast because of COVID-19, I am finally back in my natural habitat in my loft in North Hollywood. I miss my parents immensely, but I am very, very, very happy to be back home in my own bed with my view of my mountains. I miss this place. It was a hot, stuffy mess when I got back, but, but to credit, I'm one of those anal retentive people that cleans my house from top to bottom before I travel. So when I got back, my house was in perfect condition, just a little stuffy, a little dusty, Nothing that opening some windows and and some Windex won't fix. I will say this. If you do not have to travel right now, do not. Airports are a gigantic Petri dish. Although many of them, in theory, are promoting social distancing and encouraging, even requiring people to wear masks, people don't. I flew out on American, which according to their website, they're not filling the middle seat. And in first class, you get an empty seat next to you. I flew first class. I sat next to someone. He was very nice and he wore his mask for the entire flight, as did I. But that's not social distancing. I didn't see the seating arrangement in in the other sections of the plane. But just based on the number of people that were in line to get on, I'm going to imagine there was no middle seat exception to allow for social distancing. I know that masks are a good barrier, that the likelihood of of transferring COVID from one person to another is decreased greatly if both parties are wearing a mask that is encouraging. But if you can avoid flying right now, please don't. I waited three months to come back home. And had I known what the airports and the planes were looking like, I would have waited probably at least another two weeks. I think just because I was living in the suburbs and there's more space, that it didn't feel as much like a global pandemic. I don't know if it's because LA is taking more precautionary measures. Like you can't go into a grocery store without them spraying your cart down before you take it and then pumping hand sanitizer before you go in the store. In Maryland, that wasn't the case. When I got back to my apartment, there were 50 million notices that had been shoved under my door, each with increasing angst. Because again, I left here on March 8th before the whole world fell apart. There's, you know, the notice that the gym is now closed. And there's the notice that uh, the rooftop is now closed. And then there's another one that all communal areas for my building have been closed. And then there's the COVID-19 updates from the CDC about wearing masks and gloves and effects of the disease. So each with increasing angst, having to wear a mask just to step into the hallway of my building to ride the elevator is annoying. Something I didn't have to deal with when I was, you know, staying at the house, could at least get in the car and get to where I'm going before I had to put a mask on. But minor inconveniences, all things considered. I am still adjusting to the grander new world order. I think I said on a previous podcast that like every day feels like a week and every week feels like a month. Still stands. Since we last spoke, NASCAR has banned Confederate flags. The Red Sox have acknowledged racism at their games. Starbucks, at first, 
was like, no, our workers can't wear anything Black Lives Matter related. And then people were like, well, fuck Starbucks. And then Starbucks was like, no, no, we change our mind. Y'all can wear whatever y'all want. Black Lives Matter. Power fist. Which I haven't really been a fan of Starbucks since that incident in Philly with the two black guys. They called the police on them. And then Starbucks closed down all its stores to have like a, a reckoning about race. Which I was like, y'all did all that? You closed down all the stores for a day to do this massive diversity training for your workforce. And then you turn around like a year and change later and be like, no, you can't wear Black Lives Matter? Uh, figure out your company branding. Like, figure out where you stand. After Philly, I switched over to Dunkin' Donuts. I've been to Starbucks maybe once. And that's because I was in an airport and desperately in need of coffee and only Starbucks was available. Otherwise, I'm good on Starbucks. I was trying to buy shoes the other day. I've become like a sneakerhead during quarantine, but I was looking for just shoes. I was like, I just want to see what's out there, what's hot. So I went on like Nike, Adidas, Puma, Reebok, and like every single website, as soon as you pull it up, it was like a statement about Black Lives Matter. And I was like, this is weird. I appreciate it. Like, thank you for making a stance and thank you for the money that you've donated. But can I see who's in your corporate offices? I'm still curious. Because all of you shoe companies make a shit ton of money off black people and then the white people who want to be down with black culture, who wear the shoes that all the cool black people wear. The least you could do is be about Black Lives Matter because black lives and black culture has made you billions. Juneteenth has become a holiday, not a national holiday, but mad companies are like, oh, yeah, Friday, it's a holiday paid. And I was like, for Juneteenth? Keep it 100. I've been black for almost 41 years of my life. I've never celebrated Juneteenth. I know what it is. I know why it exists. But celebrate Juneteenth? No. Juneteenth is my best friend's birthday. That's what June 19th has been to me for the last 20 years. But now it's everyone's like, Juneteenth, Juneteenth. And I'm just like, I'm not mad at it. I'm glad it's getting recognition. I I acknowledge that it is a, a big holiday, especially in Texas. And I used to live in Houston as a kid. I acknowledge the significance of the day, but it's never been a significantly celebrated day in my life. I'm glad it's getting its recognition. I do plan to celebrate it this year, but this is new. This is very new. Walmart is unlocking the black-ish in its stores. Now your black hair care products aren't going to be locked up anymore. You're not going to have to ask for an attendant. Band-Aid. After 100 years, a whole centennial is now going to make nude band-aids that match the skin of black people. 100 years. It took them to be like, oh, black people bleed too. They may not want to be so obvious that they've been cut. Oh, okay. I mean, do you want me to say thank you? It took you 100 fucking years. The Navy or is it the military as a whole? The Navy, for sure, has banned Confederate flags. The military as a whole might have. I'm not sure on that one. Fact check me on that. Multiple cities have put up Black Lives Matter or End Racism Now or some sort of street art that is in support of black people, which is wild. Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben are going to rebrand. Aunt Jemima is going to change the name of their pancake mix and change their logo. Now, they changed it from a very blatantly obvious mammy image in my lifetime. I remember the other image. I don't remember when they changed it. But in my lifetime, they changed it from a heavyset, dark-skinned woman with a scarf on her head. Maybe that was in the 80s. Now they're going to change it all together because 
after watching the George Floyd tape, they realized it was racist. Which... 401 years after black people were brought to America, Jamestown, and enslaved, all of the the brutality of slavery, all of the lynching, all of Jim Crow, all of the Ku Klux Klan, all all of everything. It took a video of George Floyd for white people to be like, oh my God, this is bad. I mean... I'm glad there's been a a wake-up call. I'm glad there is a reckoning. But there will always be a part of me that's just like, it took you this long? It's still some confusion about what to do about this Robert E. Lee Memorial in Richmond. They said it would come down. Then there was a judge who was like, no, it can't come down. There's a stay. So now they're going back and forth on whether it can or it can't. They have tagged that shit up with fuck 12 and Black Lives Matter to the high heavens. And you can't get all of that paint out. Mm. Funny thing about these Confederate statues. All this time, I have been under the impression that these statues to former slave owners and prominent members of the Confederate Army, I thought these statues must have gone up no later 1880. But I was under the very naive impression that these statues had been built shortly after the Civil War in order to commemorate the fallen generals. Come to find out, I was watching probably CNN because I watch CNN like nonstop. Congressman Clyburn from South Carolina, he was like, all these white people talking about like legacy of these statues. He was like, most of these statues were built in my lifetime. He's like in his 70s. He was like, most of these statues were erected in the civil rights movement. Literally half of these statues that white people be like, our legacy, our legacy. They were erected in like the 1950s and 1960s. And they were erected in response to Brown versus the Board of Education, which was 1954. What is it? Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. If I remember my history correctly, separate but equal. Fast forward to 1954 and they're like, yeah, no, it's actually very unequal. And we're actually going to desegregate all the schools. White people freak out because now they're going to be black people sitting with their white kids. And they start erecting all these damn statues, monuments to the Confederacy to remind black people of how white folks really feel about them. We fought a whole damn war to keep you enslaved. That's what all these statues are about. So white people are like, our legacy, our legacy, our history, our history. Mofo, you talking about 1950. I'm just trying to figure out, like, who could enslave you or your kids that you would be okay with a monument and a park named after? Who do black people think is a hero that white people hate? Nat Turner. Can Nat Turner get a park in a white neighborhood? Because if you okay with Robert E. Lee being on a prominent strip in Virginia, right? He's, he's legacy. He's American history. So is Nat Turner. Black people love Nat Turner. Black people think Nat Turner is a motherfucking G. Why can't Nat Turner have a park? Oh, because he went and killed all those goddamn white people. And they're like, oh my God, that's sick. That's evil. Why would you put a murderer in a fucking park? Why would you put a murderer in a fucking park? Duh. That's why the statues have to come down. And no one's saying kill the history, kill the legacy. Take the Robert E. Lee statue, put it in a museum. Put it in context. Tell me everything you want about Robert E. Lee. Make it an interactive exhibit. I'll push the little buttons. I'll listen to the voice. You could do like, what is it called? What are they trying to do with like Whitney Houston and her, and her concert? Not CGI. You know what I'm talking about. They try to do it with Tupac too. You know. 
But you could do one of those with Robert E. Lee. Have him like, you know, like he's really there. I'm not saying we can never discuss Robert E. Lee. I'm just saying if Nat Turner can't have a goddamn statue, Robert E. Lee shouldn't have one either. I missed the point. I want to go back. All these gestures from all these companies, cute, nice, long overdue. Thank you. I'm glad you finally got around to it. I do appreciate it. But I I need real gestures, like actual real change that affects the day-to-day, everyday lives of black people. Aunt Jemima, we made peace with Aunt Jemima in the box and Uncle Ben's and Band-Aids that match white people. Black people have been made peace with that. We don't really care. What I do care about is that three months after Breonna Taylor's murder, that no police officer involved has been charged. That woman was asleep in her bed. She was innocent. She was a working woman. She was an EMT. She had no criminal history. She wasn't doing anything. She was literally sleeping. And because the police thought very incorrectly that they were raiding a trap house, you wouldn't shot up this lady's house. And she's dead. She took seven or eight bullets. She's dead dead. And no one has been charged in her murder. Beyonce wrote an open letter to the police department pointing out that like, hey, it's been three months, 90 days. What y'all doing? This is a problem. And yet and still, no change. No one has been arrested. No one has been charged. That's a problem. That's real change. Charging these officers, arresting these officers, convicting these officers, and properly sentencing these officers. Putting measures in place that keeps these racist mofos from running up on black people and shooting up their shit. Shooting unarmed black people. Using reasonable responses with black people. That's the change we need. Starbucks and your Black Lives Matter shirts? Cute. NASCAR, you got a Black Lives Matter car? Strange, but cute. Of all the sports being progressive about race, NASCAR, NASCAR is leading the way. Strange times we live in. All of those things are very cute. I can live without NASCAR having a Black Lives Matter car. Change some shit that actually allows me to live. That's the important part here. Since the last time we spoke, there has been yet another shooting. We're on day 22, 23 I think of national protest, international protests about Black Lives Matter. In the middle of protesting the shooting of unarmed black people, Atlanta police managed to shoot another unarmed black person. This time it was a 27-year-old man, a husband and father of three, Rashard Brooks. He was asleep in his car in a Wendy's parking lot. His car was blocking the drive-thru in some way, and people had to drive around him to get to the drive-thru. Someone called 911 and said, hey, there's this situation. There's this man. We think he's intoxicated. He is asleep in the drive-thru. Two police officers show up. They wake him up. They get him out of the car. They talk to him for 40 minutes. They give him a breathalyzer. They realize that he has overserved himself, and they attempt to arrest him. A scuffle ensues in which Mr. Brooks grabs one of the officer's tasers. It's bright yellow. He escapes from the tussle. He runs off. And while he's running away, he turns around to fire the taser, which was out of commission because it just been fired at least once, maybe twice. The officers knew he didn't have a weapon because they'd searched him. They were talking to him for 40 minutes. It was a very polite conversation, clearly inebriated, but polite conversation nonetheless. He told them about his daughter's birthday the next day. The officers knew he only had a taser and not a gun because one of the officers yelled, he has my taser. So he turns around to fire a taser that could not have worked. And one of the officers shoots two bullets into his back because he was fleeing. Two bullets into his back. The third bullet hit one of the cars in the parking lot. 
Because as the police are doing all this, again, Mr. Brooks was at a drive-thru. There's a ton of cars lined up trying to get Wendy's. All these cars, all these witnesses, tons of video of this incident. I held the podcast today because I knew there was going to be an announcement from the prosecutor's office about what exactly happened and whether there were going to be charges for the officers who shot Mr. Brooks. There will be charges. There are 11 charges against the two officers. One of the officers is turning state's witness to testify against the other officer, which sounds, you know, cute enough, until you hear more details from the story. So after Mr. Brooks was shot, he goes down on the pavement in the parking lot. One of the officers kicks him. He's not yet a body. He's bleeding out after being shot twice. He kicks him. And then another officer comes over and stands on him. Stands on his shoulder. This is the officer that turns state witness. So don't think he's a hero because he's testifying against another officer. He's breaking the blue wall or some shit. He's no hero. A man with no weapon that you just had a conversation with for 40 minutes. You can't even see any humanity in him to shoot him much less to go and kick him, much more to go and stand on him. I heard those details and I have anxiety. And sometimes when I need to like self-soothe, I have a metal desk, which is always cold. And I put my forehead on my desk and I count. And after I heard about Rashard Brooks, not his body, him, he was still alive, being kicked and being stepped on, stood on, Like he was an object. I put my forehead on my desk and I just cried. I just cried. That poor child is going to forever associate her birthday with her father being killed by police. He's got like a one-year-old who won't remember him. Who only know him from pictures. That's... (sighs) I have no words for that. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dave Chappelle, our dear friend Dave Chappelle. I love Dave Chappelle. He released a, can't call it a comedy special, a commentary, a TED Talk of sorts. He dropped a surprise special, kind of like Beyonce drops an album, 846 aptly named after the amount of time the officer in Minneapolis that he kneeled on George Floyd's neck, killing him. It was unexpected. Welcome. And he was like, I haven't said anything because the streets are talking. And he was like, this is not a time where people want to hear from celebrities in their insulated worlds and their big houses. He was like, the streets are speaking and they don't need my voice as a distraction. But for whatever reason, Dave was moved to create and produce this special. Dave Chappelle is a welcome voice. One of the traits of a great comedian is to to take in the culture and to find the threads and weave everything together. And so, yes, you, you might make it humorous so it's more easily digestible, but essentially you're a truth teller, but you may add some humor. There wasn't much humor in, in this special. It was a lot of raw truth. It was very personal. For, for Dave Chappelle, he talked about how 846, those minutes that it took the officer to kill George Floyd, also happens to be his birth time. Dave Chappelle was born at 846 in the morning. And pause. Dave Chappelle did this whole special. Like, he started working out like a while ago. And we know him now as like Buff Dave Chappelle. But this show... He had on like this sheer shirt and you could kind of see his nipples for like most of the show. So I was a little distracted because I'm used to like skinny Dave Chappelle in non-sheer shirts. And here we have like big wide buff Dave Chappelle with his nipples showing. And I was like, this is just, I, he's talking about some serious shit, but I'm kind of weirdly titillated here. It's very strange. Back to shit that matters. He weaves George Floyd's death into the larger cultural context. And he talks about... John Crawford, which is a lesser known story. And I actually know the reason why it's a lesser known story. I don't know if I can tell that story, though. No, I can't. I don't want anybody to lose their job. Anyway, John Crawford, black man, early 20s. He was shopping at Walmart and he was looking at a BB gun, which was on sale at Walmart. So he's looking at the BB gun. Some customer sees him, calls the police and says, oh, my God, there's a man with a gun in Walmart. Police show up and just shoot him, kill him. And Dave Chappelle was like, yeah, the officer that shot John Crawford that day in Walmart had pulled me over the night before and was like, oh, you're Dave Chappelle. He let him go. He also talks about Chris Doner, which I totally forgot about this story. But Chris Doner was a former LAPD officer. He was fired from the LAPD for complaining about misconduct. Dave talks about exactly what it is in the special, but I don't remember the details. Please forgive me. He appealed it several times. He wasn't able to get his job back. And he went on a killing spree of cops. And he writes this manifesto that is released in the media. And in this manifesto, Dave Chappelle is one of the people that he mentioned. So Dave Chappelle talks about his tie-in there. It's very raw, angry, 
justifiably and rightfully so. Most of the reviews of of 846 have been very positive. Um, I need to unpack at some point why I'm hesitant to say what I'm going to say next. I really have an issue critiquing, but some reason I don't like critiquing Dave Chappelle, and I'm not sure why. Dave Chappelle has a serious blind spot when it comes to women. In the special, he talked about Candace Owens. I discussed her last week, and I had no nice words for her. I think she's a horrible human being, and I believe I called her a trash-ass human. Candace Owens, if you would recall, I mean, she's done a bunch of horrible things, but her most horrible as of late was to find George Floyd's criminal record and announce all the horrible things that he'd done to the world and say that he's no hero and we shouldn't be mourning his death as if he was doing any of those horrible things when a police officer decided to kneel on his neck. Candace Owens does this horrible video disparaging George Floyd and Dave Chappelle reacts to that video in this special and he says, I don't care if he, George Floyd, personally kicked Candace Owens in her stanky pussy. I don't know if it stanks, but I imagine it does. If I ever find out, I'll let you know for sure. He goes on to talk about Laura Ingram and he calls her a cunt and a bitch. And this is because Laura Ingram once said of LeBron James when he was speaking out. I don't remember what issue it was, but he was speaking out about some black issue and was like, this shit is fucked up. Laura Ingram literally said, shut up and dribble. But of his use of derogatory terms to refer to women, Dave Chappelle defended it on the special. He was like, oh, quote, I use bitch all the time because this is black. Bruh. I love Dave Chappelle. I think he is insightful. I think he is funny. I think he's intelligent. I think he's a smart. I think he has a huge blind spot here in the way that he speaks of women. Again, I, I think Candace Owens is trash. I think Laura Ingram is trash. I think to defend the use of the word bitch because it's black? No. I mean, misogyny is as interwoven into black culture as it is into American culture. And black men, we're going to talk about this in a second with one of the interviews coming up, do have a blind spot when it comes to the way they speak about and the way they treat black women. It's been an especially hard week. And it's only Wednesday as I'm taping. But this week alone, there's been a video of a black woman being thrown in a dumpster by two black men a black man smacking the dog shit out of a black woman with a skateboard. He hit her so hard and she dropped so fast. My God, she didn't even see it coming. And there was a young activist, 19, in Tallahassee. Her body was just found. She was missing for a few days. Toyin? But it's been a hard week for, for, for the treatment of black women. And it's only emphasized... By Dave Chappelle saying that, you know, I say bitch because it's black. He does in, in his jest, in his misogyny, highlight a crucial problematic issue in black culture. Just as Dave Chappelle can provide necessary commentary about race and black men and the experience of black men. I wish that he could. I wish that he could lead the way in being less misogynistic as opposed to playing into the baser parts of the culture. I think we need to talk about Insecure. The season finale, I hope you watched it. Otherwise, I'm about to spoiler alert you. You might want to fast forward like five minutes or so. If you've been following this season, it's been very up and down. This was not my favorite episode for a variety of reasons, but 
the standout of this episode was Issa and Lawrence had reunited and everything was going swimmingly well. And then Lawrence's, I don't know if he was in a relationship with Crayola, but they were a something and they were having the sex. And then Lawrence decided to go back to Issa and then Canola calls and says, I'm pregnant. And then Lawrence goes to Issa and says, Condoleezza is pregnant. And Issa, her face cracks. It's great acting by Issa Rae. Actually, all three of them. Like, Issa looked devastated. Lawrence looked bewildered and broken. Crisco looked confused and hurt. It was a really harrowing scene. A really harrowing situation. Condola tells Lawrence, like, you know, you can be as involved as you want to be, but I'm going to have this kid. And Lawrence is so god-awfully offended by the idea of her being pregnant by him and being tied to her. Like, that's got to hurt for her. And it's not like she did anything wrong. Like, she was like, I'm not trying to trap you. Well, he agreed to have sex with you. Like, unless she went and poked holes in the condom, like, you're not trapping him. So trap him? No, she didn't. People are like, well, she's choosing to have a baby and he doesn't want to have one. I'm like, he lost that right when they had sex. Everyone knows how biology works. This idea that like now that she's pregnant, he gets to say so in whether she has the kid or whether he's involved. That's not how this works. These are grown people. Everybody should know how biology and child support works. And if you don't, ignorance of how life is doesn't absolve you from having to deal with its consequences. Sorry. But Lawrence doesn't want to have this kid. I felt bad for him because this is clearly not something that he wants. This is clearly not something that he intended. It's just sort of a, a thing that happened. Issa is back with Lawrence. She's, you know, contemplating building a life with him. She's, you make me happy. She's in a good place for the first time in a lot of seasons. And then this happens. It's a shit show all around for all three of them for very different reasons. I watched this, this go down and I was hurt for everyone. Like I was just like, you know, I hurt. Folks called me everything but a child of God for suggesting that Issa should leave Lawrence under these circumstances. For the people who are like, oh, yeah, like she should stay with this man. And I was like, one, why? And two, like, have you really thought this out? Because I'm like, you know what? This love conquers all. And with love and God, we can conquer anything. Theoretically, practically on the ground. Like, are people really looking at this situation? When Canola has her doctor's appointments to check on the health of her baby, like, Lawrence should probably go. Is Issa going to drive him? Is she going to check in with him? Like, oh, tell me about the health status of your unborn child. That's expected of her. She stays in a relationship, right? Is she going to help him pick out a crib for his child with someone else? Is she going to help him put it together? Is she going to help decorate the baby's room at his house? Because he's the father of the child and everything we know about Lawrence. Even though Canola was like, you can be as involved as you want to be. Everything about Lawrence says he's going to be a stand-up dad. He's going to be a present father. Stay with me. How does this play out? When there's a baby shower, is, is Issa going to go? Is she going to be okay with watching Lawrence take pictures with Canola? Is she going to be okay with Canola's family looking at Issa with like death eyes, like wondering why she's there? Is she going to be okay with Lawrence's family and friends looking at her with pity and whispering about how stupid she is? Is she going to be okay with that? Or is she just not going to attend and be scrolling through her Instagram and look at pictures from the baby shower? Is she going to like them? Is she going to the hospital with him when she gets the call that the baby's on the way? Or is she going to stay at home? Is she going to wait in the car? Is she going to come upstairs? Is she going to take the picture of him the first time he holds his child? Like, where does she fit into this picture? This is what you want for this woman? To be 
playing like the third party to these two people that have a child on the way. This is some struggle love shit. I'm going to go back to that meme. And I hate to refer to memes, but some of them are really fucking good. But there's always the one that's like black women deserve love where they don't have to struggle first. Black women deserve marriage where they don't have to struggle first. You really want that for Issa? You really want that for yourself? I don't know. Some people might. This is one of those things that if one of my friends was like, well, this happened and, you know, I'd be like, well, girl, what you going to do? Because if you don't really ask me for my opinion straight out, I won't give it to you. It's just a life coach thing. I'm like, hmm, okay, well, that's crazy. What, what do you think you should do? If somebody told me they were going to stay with somebody who had somebody pregnant, I'd be like, well, girl, okay. But it's never something I would encourage someone to do. Issa's 30. Even if Issa was 40 or 50, I would tell her he has someone else pregnant. Let that man go focus on his impending child. Whatever age you are, whatever situation you are, you can do better than a man who has somebody else pregnant while he's dating you. If you choose not to act like you know, that's one thing. But just so you know, you can. Hmm, I should have said this earlier when I was talking about all the new changes that are coming with Black Lives Matter. We're getting a Black Bachelor for the 25th season of The Bachelor, which I have mixed feelings about. Because again, like the same thing with Band-Aids. I'm like, it took you 100 years to decide that Black people bleed and might want Band-Aids that match their skin. The producers of The Bachelor, the network that runs The Bachelor, ABC, Disney, for whatever reason, they just decided we don't need a Black guy. That's not important to us. Black people fall in love. Black people like to date. Black people love reality TV. People have been screaming about it. I want to say 2012, 2010. Two black guys filed a lawsuit. They were like, the bachelor is discriminatory against black people. Why won't they feature a black bachelor? And the bachelor, their lawyer's argument was, we have the right to be discriminatory. You can't force us to feature a black person. And so for all this time, they didn't. Until conveniently, Black Lives Matter and everyone is getting called out for racism, including the bachelor franchise. They've had one black bachelorette. That was cousin Rachel, Rachel Lindsay. I covered her season, but she called them out right before they decided to announce the black guy and was like, look, I'm a popular part of your franchise. Like, you know, I'm, I married my bachelor. We are proof positive of the show working, but you guys keep using me as like our sign of diversity. And she was like, I'm about to bow out if you don't hire a black person. There was a petition circulating. 80,000 people signed it saying there should be a black bachelor. And conveniently, like two days later, ABC was like, oh. We have a Black Bachelor. The show isn't even taping until well into 2021. They just wanted to announce they had some diversity now to save off, I don't know, a boycott, drama, accusations of racism. I don't know. But they announced his ass early as hell and be like, look, a Black guy. He's cute. There is great concern over whether he actually dates Black women. And look, I don't have a problem with Black men who date the spectrum. You love who you love. You like who you like. I don't feel tied to black men. It's my preference. But I like fine men of all colors. I am available to Andrew Cuomo. I know he's a little older than my usual demo, but I like a man who can lead. And I think he might be frisky. It seems he has nipple rings. But that's neither here nor there. I don't care if the black bachelor likes to date women of all colors. It does seem, however, that the black bachelor does not date black women. It seems that he is... A fan of white women only. His mother is white. If that's your choice, so be it. 
I haven't heard of him saying anything negative about black women. Sometimes black men who prefer to date white women, they justify it by saying negative things about black women. I've not heard any of that from him. So if he wants to date white women, God bless you, sir. I have no issue with that. But I don't necessarily want to sit through like 10, 12, 13 episodes of a show about it. Every episode of The Bachelor is two hours. I'm really not trying to dedicate two hours a week to watch a black man overlook black women. And people say sometimes, they're like, Demetria, well, the black bachelorette, she didn't go with the black guy. She ended up with a Latino guy. Yes, but she was black. And no matter who she ended up with, I was watching a story about a black woman. If this black guy doesn't pick a black girl, then I'm just watching a show about a black guy who doesn't pick a black girl. There's no black woman involved. I mean, God bless him for whoever he chooses. But if it's not a black girl, why do I have an interest in it? It's fine. I want you to find love. I just don't want to watch 13 episodes of you searching for someone who's not black. Is that wrong? I don't think that's wrong. So we'll see. I don't do video recaps anymore. I do my quick hot takes on Instagram. They're just much easier to do. Everyone's like, Demetria, the videos, we want the videos. I'm like, I give you a podcast. I'm like, no, 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 videos. We want videos. We want to see the facial expressions. We want to see the coffee mug. I said that I would watch The Black Bachelor for three episodes to check him out, to check out his dating pool, to see what direction he seems to be moving in, and then we'll reevaluate from there on an episode-by-episode basis. I think that's fair. Did you see the new Spike Lee movie, The Five Bloods, on Netflix? It's about four guys, old black men, who go back to Vietnam under the guise of finding their fifth, who was killed in Vietnam, but his body didn't make it back. Because it's a Spike Lee movie, you know that that's just the beginning. There's like 120 layers beyond that. One of them is that all the guys are named after the members of The Temptations, which I was like, only Spike Lee would do that. Half the soundtrack is Marvin Gaye, and half of that is Marvin Gaye singing a cappella, which if you've ever doubted whether Marvin Gaye could really sing, which you'd have to be kind of crazy, he sounds even better a cappella. Marvin Gaye had a beautiful voice. Because the movie just came out, I don't want to give too much away. I will say that if you like Spike Lee movies, you will like this one. Delroy Lindo is phenomenal. He's playing a Vietnam vet with untreated, I would say, PTSD. And he just, he plays the hell out of the role. One of the other guys is um, Clay Davis from The Wire. Don't ask him what that man's real name is. Clay Davis from The Wire. Shit. Him. Lester Freeman from The Wire. Don't ask him what that man's real name is. He is Lester Freeman from The Wire. Who made the dollhouses and ended up with the stripper. Him. He's in it. He's amazing. And the other guy. I don't know his name in real life or his, his most beloved character name. He was Olivia Pope's black boyfriend on Scandal. But it's the four of them plus Chadwick Boseman. Don't ask him what his name is in this movie. His name is Chadwick Boseman. That's how we know him. It's a good movie. It's very Spike Lee. That's, that's the best I can tell you. If you are not a huge fan of Spike Lee movies, may I make one suggestion to you? I'm going to tell you how to enjoy Spike Lee movies. Watch them scene by scene. Don't watch it as a full story a collection of scenes that create a narrative. Just look at scene by scene. Look at the direction. Look at the colors. Listen to the dialogue. Watch the actors. If you are not a Spike Lee fan, if you just look at Spike Lee movies scene by scene, Spike Lee movies become phenomenal. Stop looking for a narrative. Stop looking for shit to make sense. Scene by scene. It's the secret. 
I liked many aspects of this current movie. Spike Lee does really well with travel films when he goes international. I think I talked about this with She's Gotta Have It when they went to Puerto Rico. And I was like, I would totally watch a travel show with Spike Lee. It was wonderful. In this movie, they go to Vietnam. And I was like, this is wonderful. They keep talking about the American War. And I was like, yes, we call it the Vietnam War. It would make sense that in Vietnam, they would call it the American War. Small details. And then Spike Lee, because he's an old black man now, he writes dialogue for old black men really well. I enjoyed it. It was like looking at my father and his like shenanigan filled friends, like Uncle Teddy, who was not a numbers runner. And then his friend who actually was a numbers runner. It was like watching all of them get together and talk shit. It was fun. I liked it. So we have two interviews this episode. One of them is with Biba Adams. She is a journalist, a national freelance writer of arts, culture and black news. And she is from Detroit. My mom is from Detroit. I woke up this morning and everyone was mad at J. Cole. I was like, what are you mad at J. Cole for? It's J. Cole. What did he do? He released a song yesterday, Snow on the Bluff. I had no idea what this was referring to. I started my career covering hip hop. I used to write almost exclusively for Vibe, The Source, and Double XL. I don't follow hip hop like that very closely anymore. So I was like, can somebody explain to me like what this song is and why everybody's mad about it? In short, he releases this song and it's mostly, and J. Cole is an excellent storyteller. So it's essentially a story about a black woman activist mad at everyone, rightfully so, about injustice. But when she speaks to people, she's speaking in the wrong tone, quote unquote tone. That's literally a word he uses to describe this activist in his lyrics He's talking about how this activist is speaking down to people instead of educating them. Listeners largely assumed that his inspiration for this song was a viral tweet by a female, black female rapper named No Name, who earlier this year made a tweet essentially saying that a lot of rappers who built their careers talking about injustice and Black Lives Matter have gone Twitter silent with all the uprisings and unrest and injustice that are currently happening. That tweet is what they think inspired J. Cole's song. I was confused because I was like, I've seen pictures of J. Cole at protests. I don't necessarily need J. Cole to tweet if he's actually showing up with action. A tweet is, is cute. You know, it's lending your voice to something, but it's something you can do while sitting on the toilet. Getting up to go protest means more to me than a tweet. Since I've seen pictures of J. Cole at protests, I don't even understand why he would think that that applies to him. But there's a lyric in the song where he says, I think this woman is talking about me, which I was like, sir, I think that's your personal insecurity. I wouldn't assume you. But at least in the narrative of this song, he assumes that it is about him. I woke up this morning. I see all these people are upset at J. Cole. I look into the situation like I, I, you know, search for it on Twitter. I didn't really see a lot of articles talking about it yet. But people were mad as hell. People were talking about like, fuck J. Cole, cancel J. Cole. And I was like, ah, maybe I'm missing something here because I don't understand why anyone would be upset at J. Cole over this song. Because to keep it 100, a critique about people who are woke and the way that they speak sometimes to other people like they're not smart enough because they're not as woke or they're not as informed 
is a thing. It's a valid critique. So I was like, was J. Cole not supposed to say that? I don't see the lyrics as slamming. I, I see the lyrics as pointing out like a valid problem. Because there were so many people like truly fired up mad about it and people that I like respect their opinions. I was like, before I fire off some missive in defense of J. Cole, I was like, let me ask some people like, hey, like, am I missing something here? Because here's my take. What, am, what don't I know that everyone's so upset about? Like, tell me what the other side of this is so I can have an informed position. I did this on my Facebook page and I do this often. Sometimes I'll just be like, hey, there's this thing. Here's what I'm thinking. Like, let me know if I have a blind spot here because this is where I want to go with it. And I'll be like, no. So consider this. One of the original billionaires is Biba Adams. And I just read you her bio. I asked the question on my page and she was like, look, sis, here's the issue. She explained it. And I was like, oh, that's why everyone's mad. Totally missed it. I like to think I've in tune. Sometimes things just go over my head. Instead of regurgitating Biba's words or reading you what she said, I was like, you know what, Biba, you got a, you got a quick 15? Can you come talk with me? And we talk with the listeners together. Explain it to them like you explained it to me so we can all have understanding. Isn't that what they say in church? I don't know. I ain't been in a while. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Please welcome Biba Adams to Ratchet and Respectable. When I woke up this morning, I saw everyone was mad at J. Cole. And I was like, wait, what? The great time to explain it to me. So thank you very, very much. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for being open to hearing. So for the people who are not informed of exactly what's happening, can you break down what it is? J. Cole releases this song, Snow in the Bluff. And what's in the song that's upsetting everyone? So Snow on the Bluff, if you know the history, that's a movie that takes place in Atlanta that feels like a reality show, but it's actually fiction. That's the song's title and the origin of of that title. The story is basically, and I say story because I do think of J. Cole as a storyteller, and the story is basically of him reading a tweet that he thinks is about him, thinks that the tone is this, and you should tell me this, and teach me, and... And then later on in the song, he has this realization from a man, actually. He says that a man walks up to him and says, it feels fake. And then that's how he realizes that, you know, he's maybe not doing enough. Not because of something that the woman, who is the character, the main character of this entire story, said prior to that. It was because another man said it, and then he it clicked for him. And I can see how that could be like a beautiful story about how this whole situation and everything that we're going through is affecting you as a man. But I really wish that he wouldn't have used his platform to make a song about us for so much of the song that is hurtful. You also gave me a little more context to why this song was so upsetting because of the timing. It's coming on the heels of this viral video of a woman being literally thrown into a dumpster by two men, which was, my God. And then also this morning, I see a video of a woman, a guy, I guess, is trying to holler at her. Like, he hauls off and hits her as hard as he can with a goddamn skateboard. Imagine that being your reality, you know? And then I personally have been extremely impacted from the COVID pandemic we're all in the middle of something that we've never gone through before and then someone who i actually do admire maybe it's not a diss song maybe it was supposed to be constructive criticism i don't don't know 
I, I think that there could have been so many other things that he could have said. And J. Cole knows how to make a beautiful song about women. And it just could have been about our leadership and it could have been about the things that we are doing and it could have been about the things that we have been doing. But instead, instead it was like it was like a compliment, but a backhanded one. I think it's a valid critique to say that essentially that, you know, people who are woke sometimes can be on a high horse and speak down to people who are not as informed. I don't think that's specific to women. Demetria, J. Cole has a bachelor's degree in international finance. <laughs> who is talking down to him? <laughs> Maybe he could have said he speaks for the other masses. But he didn't say it like that. He took it very personal. I went back and, and I, I read like the tweet that initially I think that people are saying that that's what he was talking about. So like, OK, I don't think the idea that like people who make this music but ain't put out one tweet. I don't think that applied to him. We've seen J. Cole at marches over the years. Like he doesn't use Black Lives Matter as as a trend. I think J. Cole is pure heart. I like his music. I listen to it. I'll say I'm a fan and I like him as a person and I think he's an interesting, intelligent, strong, and beautiful person. But I do think that this song was poorly timed and I wish that the culture would understand if we're saying wow, you put this song out and it kind of hurt my feelings instead of saying Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I hurt your feelings. Can you explain to me why, I, how it how it felt, or what I did? You come back like I said what I said, and I stand by every word. You you're not listening at all. Yeah, he said. Well, I was honest, and I was like, "Bruh, that's if if that's your comeback, you probably just missed the whole goddamn point." You just you just missed it. You just missed it <laughs> right over your head. I would appreciate it if if we have the freedom to express. Wow, I don't like what you said. It hurt my feelings. I know how I feel about this. There could be a dialogue, but we don't get that. You get this defensiveness. If from Jump he had not seemed to have targeted at this one, the young lady is a rapper, correct? Mm hmm Okay. What's, what is her name? No name. I was like, who? I'm showing my age right now. I just think if maybe he had directed his thoughts to an overall critique of the way that people speak as opposed to targeting this one woman and had left out the part about tone because that's just a trigger word across the board. Tone and females set people off all the time. And it's like, you're talking about my tone instead of speaking about like the substance of my words, like focus on what matters. He probably would have gotten a whole lot further or just not taking something personal. Because again, I don't think the tweets were about him. I feel like his, you know, his words in some way were reflective of a lot of outspoken activism-type black women. His, his tweets could have reflected my own Twitter feed. His tweets probably could have respect, reflected your Twitter feed. It wasn't just that he was speaking about her. Even if it isn't about her, then who is it about? And why does it make me feel like it's about me? You know, I think J. Cole is an incredibly intelligent, brilliant writer. But this wasn't it. But this wasn't it. Just for clarity, we're not canceling J. Cole. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I wouldn't cancel J. Cole. I mean, this isn't... No, it's not that. It's just, the brother needs to... Listen. You know, <laughs> I listen and honor honor us. And don't don't listen in a way... The way that he said, like, talk to me and teach me. He was like, come on, 
man, there's books and documentaries. And- I feel so- like we've been talking and teaching for a while. It's it's like it, the material exists. Also, and this may be like in a whole different direction, but I wanted to bring it up to you. Black women are incredibly frustrated with black men, especially in the middle of all these protests. You have all these black women going out to march and on the front lines. And in the midst of this, like black men are hitting them in the face with skateboards. Imagine doing all that work for someone and then that person saying, you're not doing enough. That's what, that's what the song feels like. I think about the Breonna Taylor case and her GoFundMe, which is at about like, I think maybe a quarter million dollars. The, the, um, the George Floyd GoFundMe is oh, well over like $8 million. Oh, it was like 13 or 14 million last I checked. Yeah. Her killers have not been brought to justice. It's not the time. You know, it's just like etiquette would say, you know, you and I both are brought up in, you know, middle class family. We know that etiquette would say, read the room. And he did not read the room. Mm-hmm. Just like I, I was like, all these people are really upset. I'm not seeing what the issue is, but let me dig a little deeper because they pissed about something. I'm just not zeroing in on what it is. Read the room. God forbid I put out a podcast this morning with my original thoughts. Thank you for saving me. I wanted to be saved. <laughs> oh, I got you. I got you. All right, my love. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You look well. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Biba, so much. I greatly appreciate you hopping on the podcast last minute and for taking the time to explain a concept to me and keep me from being dragged. Much appreciated. Last but certainly not least, if you remember a couple podcasts ago, I wondered aloud, why does the media keep playing George Floyd's murder on a loop? And I think at the time I was like, I know this ties back into lynching somehow or maybe something even before that. But I don't know what. I don't know the history. I don't know the context. But I know that there's something there beyond it's just a news story and we keep looping it. There's something deeper. So I put that out there on the podcast and, and I was like, who do I talk to about this? Several people were like, call Stacey Patton. Stacey will tell you what it is. Stacey Patton is an award-winning journalist and nationally recognized child advocate whose research focuses on the intersections of race and childhood. She is the author of That Mean Old Yesterday, a memoir, Spare the Kids, Why Whipping Children Won't Save Black America, and the forthcoming book, Strung Up, The Lynching of Black Children and Teenagers in America, 1880 to 1968. Her reporting on issues of child welfare, race relations, and higher education have appeared in multiple outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, BBC News, Al Jazeera, and the Chronicles of Higher Education. Please welcome Dr. Stacey Patton to Ratchet and Respectable. When I was questioning why I keep seeing these, these videos of black men being killed, I was thinking to myself, one, why do they keep playing this? Like they say it's traumatic and they keep replaying it. And then I was thinking of all these videos, I've never, I can't remember a time when I've seen a white man who was killed, a white woman even, who was killed on a video, because I'm sure it happens, but I've never seen it replayed over and over and over on the news channels. Can you explain? I think your instincts are absolutely spot on. 
If you know anything about the history of lynching in the U.S., there's definitely a connection to what we're seeing now in terms of police officers uh, killing black folks. This is part of the sort of intergenerational echoes of racial dehumanization. Killing and brutalizing black people and being able to broadcast it is a form of racial porn. Lynchings were used to terrorize black people. And the same thing is true uh, about these police killings, which are rooted in that uh, history. So when we go back to lynchings, beginning in the late 1890s up through, um, say, the second uh, decade of the 20th century, uh, some of these were mass spectacles where hundreds, sometimes thousands of people showed up to witness. So white people would you know, show up at these uh, carnivalesque, grotesque spectacles, and they would even bring their children. Um, And so you have to ask yourself, why do you want a child to witness this type of um, communal barbarism as well? But it was to send a very strong message to other white people to remind them of their power and domination and supremacy over black lives, but also to send a very strong message uh, to black folks, which says your lives are in our hands. We can do what we want to do. We can maniacally destroy your bodies with impunity. And there's a certain amount of pleasure, psychic pleasure and release that white people got out of participating in these horrible, gruesome, torturous spectacles. And it didn't just end with, you know, the victim dying and, you know, being burned and dragged through the streets. They needed to relive these horrible crimes. So they did things like mutilate their victims, cutting off their genitals, toes, fingers, extracting teeth, selling these body parts off to the highest bidder. Sometimes they took photographs of the victim and sold them right there on the scene as postcards so that you could have tangible visual evidence that you were present at this spectacular shared community event, which was designed to foster solidarity among white people locally and, you know, across the country. And these not only gave white people a sense of psychic relief, but also some reassurance about their power in the world. At a time when the country was urbanizing, where black and white people were coming into new kinds of contacts with each other, there was all this sexual hysteria about black males, you know, raping folks. There was fears about black children growing up to become enfranchised people who would be economic competitors. So these spectacles uh, gave folks some, you know, some some temporary release. And, and then these objects, these consumer objects, allowed them to relive those scenes over again. And so they also integrated other kinds of technologies. Uh, so we have photography, so we've got the rise of these postcards that circulated, um, but also there were um, audio recordings of, of lynchings. So you could actually hear the screaming and the, the crowds cheering, the flesh you know, being burned. And so here we are, flash forward a century, or even less that depending on you know, when you count the last uh, lynching in the 60s. And you have the internet and cable news 
that allows for, for a sort of continuation and broadcasting and marketing of white supremacy by playing these police shootings on loop. And they serve the same sort of psychological purpose. I wish you could see my face right now because I, I'm, it's a mix between perplexed and disgusted. Are these news channels aware of what they're doing or is this something that's so built into the cultural psyche that we just do almost as imitation without even knowing? I think two things can be true, but I have to question. Uh, we know that white people are also killed by the police, but we don't see the public murders of white bodies playing on loop over and over and over and over again. I think that we, that we have to go back to the slavery era before we had visual technologies. You could read slave narratives where you'd have to have white people who witnessed the beatings of black bodies describe these things and the, these scenes in very lurid details. You would also have journalists who showed up at lynchings and they would write in very graphic, sensational details about you know, the torture of black people um, during lynchings. Newspaper editors were quite aware that these kinds of stories would sell papers because it fed, you know, the curiosity and uh, of readers who were titillated by stories of, of, of black death. We're talking about a news media that is a descendant of a longstanding racist media. So I think that the long history of public brutality against black people as expressed in, you know, narrative form, whether it's abolitionist literature or newspaper accounts from the 18th, 19th century, or journalists who attended lynchings who were writing about these crimes and graphic details, that early history helped to normalize black death. Even the civil rights coverage. I mean, you saw black people being beaten by cops, hosed down. Emmett Till's murder, I think about the ways in which black people tried to seize that imagery and turn it into some, something else. Uh, so rather than allowing it to stand as porn, like titillating porn for white supremacists to kind of get off on their power, to say, here's a dead nigger, and let us pose around this corpse to say, look, guys, we've done our part in maintaining the future and strength of white, white supremacy. You had black activists, black mothers like Mamie Till and others who seized those images and tried to invert them to say, look, this is how barbarous, how savage white people can be when it comes to black bodies. So those, you know, became a source of, of activism. But the combination of all of those, I think, have gotten us to this point where seeing black people being killed in real time, time is just so normal. It's just so mundane and at the same time traumatic. And I think it serves the purpose of kind of weakening us as a people to say, look, you can't even defend yourselves. We can choke you to death on a public street and exonerate ourselves, and we can do it and do it again. We could put our knees on, on your neck and kill you again and stare right into the camera and then play it on loop over and over and over again. It is a form of psychological warfare. Maybe it's a producer making the decision uh, to play this stuff on loop. Maybe it's unconscious. You know, I, I don't know what their motivations are. Somebody would have to, you know, ask these folks, why do y'all keep doing it? But the outcome is still the same. It fosters this kind of world syndrome among black people, which is very valid that, you know, at any time our lives 
can be taken and we will be blamed uh, for our own deaths. Without even, you know, having all this historical context that you just provided, but you watch it and that's what it feels like at any time you can be taken out for no reason. Absolutely. I remember feeling that vulnerability when Sandra Bland was killed. Here's this woman going for a job interview, just a mundane every day going about your business. She ends up dead. I just remember for the first time in my life, and I'm, I'm, I'm a small black woman. I'm not physically threatening to anybody. I just remember going into white spaces, whether they were grocery stores, on the metro, and feeling this vulnerability for the first time that just going about my business, somebody could decide to misread me in some sort of way. And my life can end. And, and then they'll go through my Facebook feed and they come up with this narrative to try to justify why you, you know, you were killed. When we see that on loop and the, there's no prosecutions, when there are chronic exonerations, I mean, it just feeds the frustration, the fears, the cynicism and the hopelessness. One of the things that I'm really bothered by is how in the middle of this national, international uprising about Black Americans and police violence and police murders and out of control, that the police just can't seem to stop killing people. I call it an ancestral mandate. In order to, for us to understand why white agents of the state and other vigilantes keep killing Black people, you have to understand something about their neurobiological history, which means their own traumas and the ways in which white people have been systemically brutalized by their own people for millennia and how they have paid forward all of that pent-up rage and trauma and projection onto people of color everywhere, wherever they've colonized, enslaved, and such. Stacey, how do we change this? So that's always a, a, a very hard question. And I think for me, and some people may accuse me of being cynical, um, by responding this way. But I feel like Black folks, you know, we've been at this for hundreds of years. We've got books and pamphlets and policies and a long, bloody record of activism to show that we have been offering solutions. Every single generation has taken up that mandate of trying to destroy this white supremacist system. But I think we need to shift, have an internal paradigm shift and come to a point of acceptance that we live in a death culture. America is a death culture. And white supremacy is something that is a monster. Racism is not something that is static. It, it grows, it morphs, it changes. I think black people need to start having conversations about how to practice self-defense, including armed self-defense. There's this great quote by Ida B. Wells, who is my Orisha, my goddess, my hero. She was uh, investigating lynchings in the early 20th century. And she uh, recommended that every black home should have a Winchester rifle in it. W.E.B. Du Bois, 
for all of his bourgeoisness, when the Atlanta riots came, he sat out on his front porch with a, 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 a rifle, a shotgun actually, and declared that he was ready to spill the guts of anybody who came onto his front lawn to mess with his home, his wife, and his baby girl. And I think it is time for Black America to have some serious conversations about changing the ways that we deal with this kind of evil. I think we need to let go of our hope that white supremacy can be reformed, voted away, prayed for, forgiven. (laughs) That's just a suicidal position. And maybe I feel this way because I've been spending a lot of time in the archives reading some very horrible narratives. That doesn't even sound crazy to me, Stacey. That just sounds like common sense. But it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. We need to be uncomfortable because what's happening can't continue. On the last two podcasts, I've interviewed my parents and we were talking about protesting. My parents were giving me tips about going to protest and like what to do if they bring the horses out or if they gas you. Protesting to stand up for your black rights is a generational thing. You're absolutely right. Uh, as, as ours is an intergenerational mandate, I talked about what the other side's mandate is. It is to preserve the future of white supremacy. And it begins with their children. Childhood is the primary site of racial reproduction in, in this, this society. You've got generations of young white people who continue to be raised on this pedagogy of accepting and normalizing black death and black brutality. White supremacy, however it needs to be preserved, is an intergenerational mandate. And I think it's so interwoven into the fabric of America. I'm like, how do we even exist without racism, without black brutality, without violence? Because that's just what our country is. And so if you dismantle that, then who are we then? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And um, for black folks, it requires us to imagine ourselves beyond, you know, this identity that says that we are victims. But we haven't had a chance to even breathe to try to imagine those kinds of possibilities and new identities for ourselves. At the beginning of this conversation, I can't remember if we were recording yet, you mentioned you were working on a book about children who were lynched. Yes, it's a, it's a book called Strung, Strung Up, uh, The Lynching of uh, Black Children During Jim Crow. Uh, it's going to be published by Beacon Press. So my, my work as a journalist, uh, activist, and historian primarily focuses on the treatment of black children. And so we've got decades of articles, books, uh, exhibits, and such that have explored the lynching of black people. We know that there's at least 4,000 recorded names of of victims. Uh, We know there's probably way more than that. But despite this voluminous history, folks haven't stopped to look at child victims. I've been going through a lot of digitized local newspapers and uh, I've been finding victims, child victims with their, their names recorded. My oldest is 19, my youngest is a fetus, four fetuses, mind you. So at every single stage, developmental stage, embryonic development, babies, adolescents, and teenagers, they were all subjected to lynchings. And so I'm asking, what does that mean 
to lynch a black child. What does that mean? If we're going to understand how we got to Tamir Rice, how we got to Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin and so many others and a nation of adults who actually have the audacity to debate whether unarmed children deserve to die. If we're gonna understand this contemporary moment and these contemporary conversations and treatment of black children, we have to go back to the lynching era uh, to see how the foundation was set. Jesus, Stacey, I have tears in my eyes right now. Yeah, it's hard. I can't begin to tell you how emotionally draining this is to know that every time you pick up a pen and you turn the page, the story is about death. And there are no heroes. There's no hope in this story. You're talking about untold numbers of young people whose futures were stolen. They were stolen. Their grandchildren should be here. And they're not. What does that mean to snatch a root out of a black family tree? They targeted our children as a form of psychological warfare to say, look, you can't even protect your own children. Could you imagine what kind of, you know, helplessness that inspired? And then to flash forward today and see videos of Tamir Rice being shot dead within seconds or to see Mike Brown's body laying in the street and some white woman a year later making a museum exhibit out of his body. You, you write about these things as a historian thinking that they're, they're locked in the past. We're gonna go back and look at these ugly things that happen and try to give meaning and explanation and logic to it, right? So that we never go there again. But here I am in the middle of a pandemic where black people are disproportionately dying, where I can see videos in my inbox on Facebook, on the cable news. Those images look very similar to me to the ones that I'm seeing in the archives. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. I appreciate your insight. Far, far more breadth and, and depth than I even knew <laughs> or could imagine. I thank you for what you do because, girl, you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> thank you again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Isn't she amazing? I know I say that about a lot of people when they do the podcast, but it's because I only invite people to talk to me who I think are amazing. I'm like, if I don't think you're amazing, why do I have you on my podcast? I think I have like an intellectual crush on Stacey Manhattan. I don't need to explore it. It just is what it is. But that's also the end of our episode. As always, thank you for listening to Ratchet and Respectable. If you need some ratchet or respectable in your life until we speak again, please follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. It's not my personal Facebook. That's only for old school billionaires. But the other one I keep pretty lively as well. If you like this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. And I think that's everything. We'll speak again next week. Even though I'm back in L.A. and kind of, sort of, the world has reopened again, I'm keeping the weekly episodes. All right. Talk soon. Bye.